In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created. Let us pray, O God, who dost enlighten the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Granted by the gift of this same Spirit, we may be always truly wise, and ever rejoice in his consolation through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. We adore thee, O Christ, and we praise thee. Lord Jesus crucified. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. My dear brethren, we have this little mission for the next three days now, so that we can really enter into the spirit of our blessed Lord at this culminating part of Lent, where he now he takes up his cross in order to die for our salvation. This is the great week, the culminating point not only of Lent, we can say the culminating point of the whole of human history. The greatest event of human history must be the resurrection of our blessed Lord. But without that resurrection, of course, they would have, without that, uh, the passion of our blessed Lord, there would have been no resurrection. That first there must be the cross before there is the crown. So before we go on to consider the particular events of the sacred passion, let's first of all consider the relationship between the cross and the crown. Let's go back to basics. Back to basics is always a very sound principle in education, and particularly in our own spiritual education. And what is the basic truth from which everything else springs. The basic truth is that God has made us for himself and for no other. St. Augustine says, O Lord, thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts cannot rest until they rest in thee. God has made us for no other, which means God has not made us for ourselves. That the thing that we must do is to give ourselves away freely to the love and the service of Almighty God. The original happiness, the original felicity of our first parents were that they lived in that wasn't that they lived in that state, that state of perfect union with Almighty God that their whole thoughts and their whole uh, affections were bound up in him and that they loved each other 
and that they loved all the things which God had given them in him. And then, of course, sadly, this state of happiness was disturbed, was broken. When our first parents made the decision that they preferred something else to God. Or, let me, if that's a bit too harsh, let's say that they wanted to put something else as a priority over God's. Might be a bit much to say that they wanted to exclude God altogether, but they decided to put something else first. They, in fact, preferred something God had made to God Himself. That is the awfulness and the awesomeness of their crime, of the crime of original sin. In itself, I mean, to eat a fruit from a tree uh, hardly represents the end of the world, but it did represent the end of the world. It represented the end of the world as God had intended it to be. It's not so much the action in itself which was significant, it was what that action, um, that the action demonstrated that they chose the creature, the fruit of the tree, rather than God's will. And this gets us to the very essence of sin. Usually, when we learn about sin, we learn about sin when we're in school, and we are given simple catechisms. We like to think that because we know our catechism back to heart when we're adults, that we know the whole Catholic faith back to heart. It's not exactly true. The catechism, of course, was prepared for children. Everything in it is absolutely true, but it's been prepared for the minds of children. The reality of life, of course, is far more complex and far more deep than that. And so we read in the catechism, for example, that sin is a transgression of God's commandments. It's a disobedience, an act of disobedience towards Almighty God. And, of course, that is exactly what it is. But it's, that sounds very simple and clear-cut. The nature of sin, of course, is far more complex. There's another definition of sin which... I prefer, which I think gets to the root of the cause, and which is generally used in, the, in manuals of moral theology. It's a definition of a sin which says that sin is an aversion, a turning away from God, and a conversion to his creatures. Aversio adeo et conversio ad creaturas. That is the very nature of vice, is to turn away from God and to prefer something other than God's. And that must inevitably be something which God himself has made. So it seems terribly blasphemous, really, to prefer the creature rather than the creator. Because, of course, there's another axiom, nemo dat quod non habit, because there is nothing that the creature has which the creator does not have. And therefore, when we choose the creature, we are choosing the lesser good, Always, 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 we're choosing the lesser good rather than the greater good. And it only seems a good at all because of the blindness and the short-sightedness of our judgment. 
So that's what sin consists in. That's what evil consists in. That's what vice consists in. Virtue, goodness, holiness, sanctity, union with God, therefore, consists in the reverse. The reverse. That's to say, a turning away from the creature and a turning back to God. An aversion. We shouldn't obviously take things in their literal modern translation. That means an aversion from the creature, not in the sense that the, the creature is in itself bad. The creature is not bad. It's we who make it bad by our exaggeration our disordinate attachment to it. And a conversion, a turning back to Almighty God who has made us for himself. That's what sanctity consists in. All things are good. God has looked upon his creation and he's declared that it's all good. Any evil which exists in this world comes from the inner heart, from our heart. And the disordinate love or the disordinate aversion that we have towards God's creatures, because we either love them too much or love them wrongly, or we uh, dislike them with the, uh, with, with, in a manner which is unreasonable and contrary to God's law. It's a disorder which comes from inside of us and our fallen nature. And therefore, it's that that we have got to attack. And that is what Lent is meant to be all about. It's meant to be a turning away from creatures, and a turning back to God. In fact, it meant the whole purpose of our life is to do that. And because of our fallen state, because of our attachment to ourselves, because that turning away from creatures means turning away from ourselves also, not making ourselves the primary concern of our life, it is something which for us is a crucifixion. Is it not so? Every act of self-denial is a crucifixion. Some acts of self-denial are so small and insignificant that we hardly notice. I don't know if you've decided, if you've been even good enough, I don't know if you've even been good enough to not have sugar in your coffee for Lent or decide not to have a, a glass of whiskey or something like that you would hardly call it a crucifixion. It's a wonderful little gesture. But there must have been times in our life, at least those of us who have lived long enough, where our hearts have become so attached to something or somebody which we have known to be contrary to the law of God, but which has nevertheless been highly, highly, highly attractive to us. And the renunciation of that good has really been for us a crucifixion. And it's when it comes, of course, to the, uh, the renunciation of the great things that we really show our loyalty to Almighty God. It's true, of course, if we are negligent and if we fail to uh, we fail to renounce ourselves in the small things, it's unlikely that we're going to renounce ourselves in the greater. But it's essentially in the greater, it's by being crucified that we really restore ourselves and find our true happiness. It seems strange, isn't it? It's a great paradox. 
that we only find our happiness by accepting a certain degree of unhappiness which comes from a regret that we cannot have our own disordinate will. This is the lesson which our Lord wishes to teach us on the way of the cross. We must try to penetrate into the profound and the deep meaning of our Lord's death. We mustn't just consider it as a superficial act of great physical renunciation, which of course it was, but over and beyond that, our Lord renounced himself totally in his soul as well as in his body. That he willed to do the will of his Father rather than what his human will proposed to him. That's what the prayer in the agony of Gethsemane must mean. Not my will, but thine be done. It's our Lord's perfect humanity surrendering his will to that of his heavenly Father, all the more so with our imperfect and sinful humanity, which we must surrender to the will of our heavenly Father. Our Lord, of course, could have saved us without being crucified at all. He could have just said, God could have said, oh, well, you've been very naughty now, and uh, it's all very unfortunate, but, well, let's buy, let bygones be bygones. I, I save you all. I forgive you all. That's it. All written off. Perfect. Everybody's saved. He could have done that. In fact, there are Christians who think he has done that. That's what a lot of the Protestant fundamentalists say you believe. Jesus loves you. Jesus has saved you. You're completely saved. Just believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. It's not completely ridiculous because God could have done that. He could easily have done that. But he didn't do that. Why didn't he do it? Well, I think that we can say, why is it that nowadays, in this modern world of selfishness, why is it that Protestant fundamentalist Christianity is now the only Christianity left which has got any kind of a following or any kind of an interest? The question answers itself because it makes no ultimate demands. We can feel happy, we can feel forgiven, and we can go on leading our sinful lives, confiding in God's goodness and mercy. It's a beautiful, in fact, the Protestants even speak about a cover. It covers up our sinfulness. We don't see the sinfulness, try not to make it too obvious, and all will be well. That's very popular. Very, very popular. And don't sneer at it or laugh at it either, because it is an expression of a whole weakness in human nature which we have ourselves. Because if we are absolutely devastatingly honest with ourselves, that's the kind of religion that we want to have too. And we'll examine this question just shortly. Our Lord, if he willed to crucify himself, it was to give the example that we should crucify ourselves because our Lord wishes to save us, but he wishes to save us by healing us. And that healing comes through crucifixion. 
It's that crucifixion of ourselves which enters radically into our fallen nature and draws out and pulls out the poison from us. It doesn't just cover it up or pretend that it's not there or acknowledge that it is there, but it's somehow or other all all right, but we still remain flawed, useless creatures. No, God has treated us with a far greater dignity than that. He wishes us not just to be forgiven, but he wishes us to, to restore us to a life of eternal happiness which comes from a union with him, which comes from a genuine union of mind and heart, a genuine friendship, a genuine love, not just by a decree that everything is okay. All right? That's the difference. And it's that that we've got to really seek to understand. And that's why we must, if we have to follow Christ, willingly accept our own crosses in life. That's why our Lord has said, if any man would be his disciple, that he must take up his cross and follow him. It's not an optional thing. It's not something which is just for the super holy or anything like that. It's something which is absolutely necessary and fundamental to the lives of each and every one of us. But why is it so hard for us? Why is it that we ignore it? Why is it that we don't do it? Here we are at the end of Lent. We're just saying that this Lent is meant to be a time where we affirm our belief in the value of renunciation. And how many of us in this church, including me, on, in, standing in this pulpit, can honestly say that we've made anything like a good Lent, anything remotely like a good Lent? Have any of us carried any crosses at all, even the tiniest crosses? And if we are able to say that we haven't, indeed, then we've got to confess to ourselves that we want our salvation on easy terms. That's what we want. That's what the Protestant fundamentalists want. That's what we want. We want salvation on easy terms. We want the crown without the cross. See, we've reversed that. Instead of no cross, no crown, we want crown please, no cross. We all want to be saved. We all want to love God. We all want to live in eternal happiness with him forever. But we want it on easy terms. And our old enemy, Satan, knows that we want it on easy terms. And that's exactly what he proposes to us. That's what he proposes to us every day of our lives. And that's what he proposes to us every day of Lent, which is why we don't make a good Lent. And that's why on the first Sunday of Lent, that the church gives us a, uh, the passage from the gospel where we are taught about the temptation of our blessed Lord in the desert. Remind yourselves of these temptations, because they're very interesting. Our Lord went to prepare himself for his public ministry by self-denial. He went into the desert, and he did not eat for 40 days and for 40 nights. And Satan came and said to him, If you be the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Why did he say that? He said, he said, look, be reasonable. You're hungry. You've got a great task ahead of you. You've got to declare yourself to the world. 
We don't know how much Satan knew of our Lord's Messiahship or his divinity or anything like that, but Satan certainly knew that he was one of the great holy men and one of the great or probably the greatest of the prophets. And so Satan seems to take our Lord's side. He said, look, give yourself a good feed. You've got to build yourself up. You're not going to get much more done if you're exhausted and tired. And our Lord says to him, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What Satan, Satan's not proposing anything wrong. It's not wrong for our Lord to turn stones into bread, as, you, as we know later on, that our Lord turned a few loaves of bread into hundreds, thousands of loaves of bread. There's nothing wrong with it. Not the action, but the thinking behind the action is rely on material goods. Just like our Lord says to, Lent, uh, says to us about Lent, I think, what do we say before, before Lent starts, I think, oh, I'll make a good Lent this year, I'll fast. And then the voice of reason comes in and says to us, well, that's all very well, but if you start fasting, you know what's going to happen. You're going to get too tired, you won't be able to do your work, and you're going to be a real nuisance to everybody, and uh, it's not really, you don't know if God really wants you to do that, and you know how bad-tempered you are, so that once you, when, you, when you've not had your dinner, you'll get even worse, and really you should do everybody a favor and just go on the same as you're always doing. Don't we all rationalize like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, we've got to be good, but use material means. So, our Lord answers and says, it's not by bread alone. It's not by physical satisfactions or physical comforts that we are to achieve our end, but by every word that proceeds from the word, from the word of God. So Satan says, oh. all right, well, look, um, um, come with me and look, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple of Jerusalem. Because... You know, the people now are all expecting the Messiah to come soon. And they, um, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, I can't remember exact reference, but in one of the early, one of the prophets that says something about the Messiah manifesting himself over the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. So if you throw yourself from this temple, you will immediately be listened to. When people see you doing this wonderful miracle, they'll follow you immediately because that's what people like. People like to see something sensational. They like to see something out of the usual. They like to see supernatural power. Show, what are you doing in the middle of this desert? Get right to the heart of things. Show yourself off to the people. And in case you're hesitating, remember what it says in the Holy Scriptures, it says in the Psalms, if you do throw yourself off, that God will set his angels over thee to keep thee in thy ways lest perhaps I dash thy foot against the stone. There you are. Satan is very, very good, not only at being reasonable, but even at being apparently pious and quoting the Holy Scriptures. And our Lord says, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. What was Satan proposing there? Again, come, be the great Messiah without it costing you anything. Without any crowd. People aren't going to be listening about fasting and praying and all these boring things. But 
a bit of entertainment, now they'll enjoy that. People throwing themselves off towers and all that kind of thing, that's the kind of thing that people want. Superficial, easy, entertaining. So much of religion itself has come like that. The worship of God has become like that. And then so God takes, Satan takes our Lord to the, the top of the high mountain and says, look, this must be conclusive. If you're going to make an impression on the world, you've got to be famous, you've got to be rich. If necessary, you've got to have power to force people to do what you want to do. So why don't you make yourself the emperor of the world? Everybody will be at your beck and call. All the power, all the wealth of the world will be at your disposition. You will be a great, glorious, and mighty king, and lo and behold, it will cost you nothing. All you've got to do is bow down and adore me. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? All you've got to do is forget God and rely on material things. And our Lord answers, The Lord God alone shalt thou serve, shalt, shalt thou adore, and him only shalt thou serve. Now you see how Satan is constantly proposing the easy way out. Or, not even a way out at all. He's proposing a reasonable, easy, non-sacrificial agenda for our spiritual lives. That's, what the, that's the evil of these temptations. It's not a sin to be the ruler of the world. It wouldn't have been a sin for our Lord to throw himself off, the, off a tower, not like us, because he's not subject to the laws of gravity, so that would have been no problem at all, and it's certainly not sinful to turn bread into stone. So we can see how easy it is for Satan to tempt us and how easy it is for us to give in to the temptation not to carry the cross. And it all seems perfectly reasonable to do so. But we must carry the cross. Love not the world, says St. John, nor the things which are in the world. For all that is in the world is the concupiscence of the flesh, the concupiscence of the eyes, and the pride of life. Is that true? Well, it's all these scriptures. It must be true. But exercise your mind on it for a moment. Is it really true that all that is in the world is the concupiscence of the flesh, of the eyes, and the pride of life? Is there nothing else in the world? Is everything in the world bad and horrible and evil? Well, I think the answer is it's not true. There are many beautiful and marvelous and lovely things in the world that God has given us and God that wills us to love. So what does St. John mean? He means surely that all that is good in this world doesn't belong merely to this world, but it participates in the eternal goodness of God which goes on forever. But the only things which belong to this world are the perishable things of this world, the evil things of this world. Only these are really of this world. And yet, when we, and when we look at ourselves, we can see that all of this concupiscence, of course, isn't in the world at all. It's in us. Concupiscence isn't just running around somewhere outside. Concupiscence is in here, 
in our hearts. The concupiscence is in here. The concupiscence of the eyes, the concupiscence of the flesh, the pride of life. This is what we have got to be eradicating during Lent. The concupiscence of the eyes, the longing for worldly goods and wealth by alms deeds, the concupiscence of the flesh, the carnal pleasures of the world by fasting, and the pride of life by prayer and humility and supplication. So we've got to convince ourselves, and it's an amazing thing that we even need convincing when we've been, those of us now who are in our declining years, but we all need to be constantly convinced of the absolute necessity of carrying the cross. And so this is what we will now consider for the next couple of days. It's a cross which is to truly transform our life. There's a, an adage which says, crux mitat, uh, crux firmat mitem, mitigat fortem. The cross has a double effect on us. It strengthens our weakness. It strengthens our timidity. And it mitigates, it softens our hardness. You've got two attitudes towards the cross. You've got an attitude of fear and timidity, where we fear to take up the cross. And we've also got a hardness of heart, whereby we keep it away far from us. When we look at our blessed Lord's sacred passion, it should melt our hearts and strengthen our weakness. And this is the task which I hope that this little mission will do today. Now, the passion of our Lord is a great and uh, the, well, the greatest event of history. Volumes have been written about it. We could speak about it forever and ever. Amen. So we've only got a, a limited amount of time. So I propose that during this mission that we look beyond, again, look beyond the external circumstances of our Lord's crucifixion, great and wonderful as it is, and how it should move our hearts to think of our Lord being scourged at the pillar, being crowned with thorns, having nails put through his hands and his feet, being pierced with a lance, great and marvelous as these things are, I'd like during this mission to look beyond them and to penetrate into something far deeper, into the soul of our blessed Lord himself. And it's a wonderful thing that really that our blessed Lord himself says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And during his sacred passion, our Lord spoke. He spoke very little. But the words which he spoke were really and truly his last will and testament. And they reveal the inner dispositions and the inner sufferings of his heart, which are far greater than anything that he suffered in his body, tremendous and horrendous as these bodily sufferings were. And it's marvelous to think that in the very beginning of our Lord's life, he taught us how to live by the Sermon on the Mount, by the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us the whole perfect program of how we are to live the, world, the life of heaven here below on earth. And 
On the cross, he speaks the seven words, which give to us the lessons of how we are to die. So I think that we've got to therefore seek to penetrate into our Lord's soul so that we may draw the lesson from what's going on in his soul and apply it to our own lives and conform our own mind and heart to his. So, in order that we can uh, consider the words to their greatest value, like every word which is ever spoken, it's got to be quoted in its context. Now, the seven words of our Lord, of course, are a poetic expression. Our Lord spoke more than seven words. He, in fact, spoke seven sentences. One of them, in fact, was a double sentence. But they're actually seven sentences, which we piously refer to as the seven words from the cross. And so let me just read a, <clears throat> a little uh, short recitation of the circumstances in which these words were pronounced before we, we go on to consider the words themselves. After they had crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots, that the word might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, They divided my garments among them, and upon my vesture they cast lots. Then the soldiers, when they crucified him, took his garments, and they made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said then one to another, Let us not cut it, but let us cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saying, They have parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture they have cast lots. And the soldiers indeed did these things. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, And with the wicked he was reputed. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. First word from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they that passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Ve thou who destroyest the temple of God in three days and buildest it up again, save thy own self. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. In like manner also the chief priests with the scribes and the ancients mocking said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he saith, I am the son of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And the self same thing, the thieves also that were crucified him, reproached him with. And one of those robbers who were hanging blasphemed him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Neither dost thou fear God, seeing thou art under the same condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done no evil. And he said to Jesus, Lord, Remember me when thou shalt come into thy kingdom. And Jesus said to him, second word from the cross, This day thou shalt be with me 
in paradise. Now, they stood by the cross of Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing whom he loved, he saith to his mother, Woman, behold thy son. After that, he saith to the disciple, Behold thy mother. Third one for the cross. Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own. And it was almost the sixth hour, and it was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Fourth word. And some of them that stood there and heard said, This man calleth for Elias. Afterwards, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, fifth word, I thirst. Now, there was a vessel set there full of vinegar, and they, putting a sponge full of vinegar about hyssop, offered it to his mouth. And the other said, Stay, let us see whether Elias will come to deliver him. When Jesus therefore had taken the vinegar, he said, sixth word, It is consummated. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, seventh word, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And saying this, he gave up the ghost. So, these words, as I say, are our Lord's last will and testament. Superficially, they're a strange collection of words which have no obvious connection between them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I thirst. It is consummated. Into thy hand, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. So during the next few nights, we shall consider these words in a greater depth and a greater profundity. So for this evening, let's just look at the first two, if we've got time. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These are the first and the most astonishing words, really, which our Lord could have spoken, really. Our Lord had been falsely accused, his accusers had planned his condemnation for a very, very long time. When their plans went wrong, they altered them. When the accusations made against him failed, they changed the accusations. They knew that he was innocent of the crimes that they were imputing to him. They heartlessly watched him being condemned to death, being scourged, being nailed to the cross, and they saw him in this final state, the state of crucifixion, which is one of the most cruel manners of killing someone which has ever been devised. 
It's particularly designed for its cruelty. It doesn't attack any vital organ directly so that one can go on being crucified for hours and even days in a state of the most excruciating torment of semi-suffocation, cramp, thirst, and of course all of the excruciating torments of all the wounds which were involved in it. And our Lord says, Father, forgive them, which is a wonderful thing to say. But isn't it an extraordinary thing to say, for they know not what they do? Surely, surely, by any standards, they knew perfectly what they were doing. Now, what are we to learn from these words? First of all, let's look at them from the point of view of our blessed Lord himself. Why did our Lord come into the world? Why did he become a man? He became a man in order to save us. And how was he to save us if he was not to forgive us? He saves us, in fact, by forgiving us. And in fact, if there's anything which our Lord in his sacred teaching insists upon, it's not only the forgiveness of Almighty God towards fallen man, but he constantly and repeatedly insists on the necessity of those who would follow him to crucify themselves by forgiving likewise. And so I think it's not an exaggeration to say that the whole history of salvation, the whole program of our salvation, is contained in this one single sentence. Notice when our Lord taught us to pray, when he taught us the Our Father, he taught us to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. Forgive us our trespasses. There's a bit missing from that prayer, surely, because there seems to be a question missing. Forgive us our trespasses, we say to God. And God says, why should I forgive you your trespasses? And we answer, as we forgive them that trespass against us. The two things are closely related. Almighty God makes a condition that if we would be forgiven, we must forgive. If you will not forgive your neighbor, his trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. This is a fundamental teaching of our blessed Lord, which so often, too often, that we casually overlook. Casually overlook it. St. Peter once asked our Lord, you know how St. Peter was always liked to be very heroic and show how, how good he was. He said, if my brother offends me, how often should I forgive him? Up, up to seven times? 
Well, that's pretty good, isn't it? Imagine we're giving anybody seven times. Oh, goody, goody, St. Peter. And our Lord said, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven times. Our Lord constantly preaches forgiveness even when it's not asked for. Remember when the paralytic, the man who was paralyzed in his body, but presumably also paralyzed in his soul, when he came to be forgiven, in his, to be cured in his body, that our Lord said to him, be of good cheer, thy sins are forgiven thee. When the woman was taken in adultery and should have been stoned according to the law of Moses, that's to say according to the law which God himself gave, that our Lord said, well, that's right, she should be stoned to death, so whoever's innocent, stone her. <laughs> and of course, because they were afraid, because they sensed that our Lord could see into their souls, they didn't do it. And our Lord said to her, so where are all your accusers now then? Nobody to accuse you? Neither therefore do I accuse you. It's almost like God going against his own commandments, really, isn't it? So extraordinary a state of affairs, is it? One of the first things our Lord says after his resurrection, when he appeared in the upper room, he said, peace to the apostles who were there hiding. Peace be with you. Receive ye the Holy Ghost, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. And whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. Most striking of all, I think, is on the Sermon on the Mount, when our Lord says, You have read of old that thou shalt love thy friend and hate thy enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them that revile, calumniate, and persecute you. Why? That you may be truly the children of your Father in heaven, who maketh his sun to shine and his rain to fall upon the just and the unjust. Now, we enter into a great, great mystery here. Our Lord is not actually teaching something supernatural. He's actually living it. Here he is actually loving his enemies, doing good to them that hate them, praying for them that persecute and revile him. This is impossible to human nature. It's just simply impossible. And, the, and, and, the, and the, the people who read the Gospels and say, this is impossible, they are absolutely right. It is completely impossible to human nature. Human nature says that thou shalt love thy friend and hate thy enemy. What's the difference between friends and enemies <laughs> if you don't hate your enemies? They're right. It is impossible. It cannot be done. It can only be done through the power of God. It can only be done through the power of God in us. 
We must forgive. And why must we forgive? We consider this later. Jesus is condemned because he made himself the Son of God. The teaching which he gave, as we see, is already a supernatural teaching. It's a sublime teaching. And when our Lord says these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, he also declares that divinity. He calls God his Father. He declares his innocence. He declares his innocence. Forgive them. Only the innocent can forgive. They know not what they do. He penetrates into the depths of their soul. He shows forth and vindicates his divinity and his power over them. When he says these words, he shows such compassion towards them when he says that they know not what they do. Now, is that really the case? As we said, they knew what they were doing. But we can, I think, see that how how our Lord has descended so much to our fallen state that he, there's, nothing, there's nothing in our human nature which he has not taken upon himself short of sin. That he understands us completely and totally and thoroughly more than we understand ourselves. And when he says that they know not what they do, isn't it, in fact, that he takes upon himself our own point of view? Because when we are heroic enough to acknowledge our guilt, which already in itself is very hard for us to do, none of us ever like to admit that we are wrong. But sometimes we rise to the heights and we do confess our sins or our wrongdoing. But isn't it always the case that we think or that we say that there are somehow always extenuating circumstances. This might be a very, very serious thing if somebody else did it, but it's not so serious because I've done it. (laughs) I remember saying somebody said, it can't be a sin because I do it. What about that? Do you think that? It can't be a sin because I do it. It would be a terrible sin for anybody else to do, of course, naturally, but the Ten Commandments say so. But if I do it, it can't be that bad because because I I mean, I know myself and I know that I'm not a very bad person. I know that, uh, I mean, I know I'm not a perfect person either, but I'm, I'm getting there and I mean well. And if I, if, you know, if I commit a sin, well, it's maybe not very good, but it's, you know, 
there's always some reason for it. There's always some circumstance or some particular weakness that I've got that other people don't have or whatever it is. We always declare, we, I mean, we're great at magnifying the guilt of other people and being very harsh, over harsh in our condemnations of others, but we always want for ourselves an easy way out. And we usually claim some particular circumstance of either ignorance or weakness or whatnot. And I think that that's what our Lord is doing. Our Lord is actually entering into, into our abject state and pleading that to our Heavenly Father. Because it's also true that evil and wrongdoing is so great and so enormous that it's almost really beyond the comprehension of a human mind. The evil of sin is so great that we can't take it in. And because we can't take it in, other things which we can take in, which are far, far less con consequence or no consequence at all, take on a greater gravity often in our mind. That's why, for example, so often physical disasters or catastrophes in our minds and in our emotions are far greater than moral disasters or misdemeanors. So it's true that our Lord pleads for us and pleads for us in our ignorance and in our fallen state that we really and truly none of us ever really know the gravity of our sins. We plead mitigating circumstances, but the reality is that we don't comprehend the real gravity. It's another way that our judgment is, is, is falsified. So really and truly, likewise, we, because when our Lord was on that cross dying, he wasn't just speaking about the people who were in front of him, standing at the fruit of the cross, who'd nailed him to the cross. He was thinking of us. He'd come to die for all of our sins, that he saw and he died for all the sins which had been committed, which were being committed, and which would be committed to the end of time. And that's a sobering thought, to think that when our Lord was dying on that cross, he saw you and I, and he saw them as if we were the only people who existed. That's alarming. And alarming in one sense, magnificent and beautiful in another sense, depending on how we want to take it. And therefore, these words are directed to us. We really and truly know not what we do. That is the extent of our Lord's love and compassion for us. And if we are to enter into his heart, we've got to also have the same mind that he did. And therefore, in all the trials and all the problems and all the contradictions of our life, all the injustices that we have to suffer, we must have the dispositions of our blessed Lord. Because it's another great paradox and a great mystery that our Lord saved the world by dying on the cross. He saved the world by submitting to the greatest act of injustice that ever happened. By being sinned against, he saved the world. By being sinned against in the right dispositions, we save ourselves. 
By suffering in the right dispositions, in the same dispositions of our Lord, we suffer not just in the sense that we make a heroic act of self-renouncement and we offer it to God, but that we do it with God or we do it in God. And in fact, more than that, if we are able to reach that height of or that depth or penetration into the heart of Christ, we really and truly become transformed into him. That's one of the great, one of the great teachings, fundamental, again, teachings of the church, which again are very sadly overlooked, the doctrine of the mystical body of Christ. That those of us who are in a state of grace, those of us who have the mind and heart of Christ, are really members of his body, that he lives in us and we live in him. And therefore, he suffers in us. And that's why Christianity is the only religion which makes a difference. Because it's not just the true religion in the sense that the doctrines which it teaches are true, and the, and the teachings of, of other religions are false. That's, that's correct, but it's again, it's superficial. The church is a, not just a, a body of people who believe in a set of doctrines. The church is a body of people who are actually united, a living body, with Christ. That they live in Christ, in God. And therefore, they are able to do superhuman things. You've heard the saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You must have heard that expression. Because it's through martyrdom, particularly in martyrdom, that we see Christ suffering in his members. It was martyrdom, it was the, it was the witness of the martyrs which changed the course of history. Now, they didn't change the course of history, with all due respect, because they were teaching the truth or because they belong to the true religion and so on as such. They changed the course of history because they were so united with Christ and Christ was so living in them that they were able to perform miracles. And I don't mean miracles by bringing down fire from heaven or uh, multiplying loaves of bread or anything like that. They did greater miracles than any of these. They died loving their enemies. That is a greater miracle than drawing down fire from heaven or opening up the Red Sea or anything like that. They died loving their enemies. Think about that. That's impossible. And, and their enemies were so startled and so amazed at such a thing that they were converted. Nothing else could have or would have converted them. Just think about that. The martyrs of Christianity, of the church, are not to be considered like the martyrs of any other organization or any other fanaticism. It's not dying for a cause which is particularly noble. Well, it is noble in a human sense. But any mad thing will always get any number of fools to die for it. Communism, fascism, Nazism, any other thing. You'll always get people who will die for it. 
And they die for the cause. And they're, often they're called, even called martyrs, the martyrs to the cause. They die for the cause, and they die for the cause usually at the same time killing for the cause or doing damage for the cause. They die hating the enemies of the cause. Now this is really important to understand. The Christian martyrs did none of these things. The Christian martyrs died loving the enemies of the cause, loving the enemies of the cross. And as we said earlier, that cannot be done. That is impossible to human nature. When the man is being tortured, you expect him to be screaming curses and abuse. You do not expect him to be calling down blessings upon your head. And if you do witness such an strange thing, it would strike you with considerable fear because you would really be in the presence of the supernatural. And that's what the martyrs did. And that's what made the difference. And, it, and the difference is, it was Christ who was doing it in them, not by any strength of their own. And that's why it's very necessary to see that Christ is all in all in us. This is the miracle of Christianity, whereby we not just love God as a private relationship between us and him, but we love all that he loves. So that all that he loves, we love. See also these words of our blessed Lord. He said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. He did not say, I forgive you. Why didn't he say, I forgive you? Because he did forgive them. Obviously, he forgave them by dying for them. Why didn't he say, I forgive you? I think he, he didn't say, I forgive you, because his life is meant to be an example for us to follow. Therefore, everything that he does is so that it may be a source of edification for us and for us to follow him. Therefore, if he said, I forgive you, it might give us the idea that we could say, I forgive you. Now think about the words, I forgive you, what they imply. I forgive you, when we say it, great and noble and heroic as it is, means I am innocent and you are guilty. That's why I forgive you. Now, in this context, we are all guilty. We are all guilty of the crucifixion of our blessed Lord. Therefore, we may not be guilty in the precise circumstance that our neighbor is guilty, but we are all guilty of sinfulness and rebellion. And therefore, we should rather appeal to God, that God should forgive. And it mustn't either be, as sometimes can be the case, 
when we say, I forgive him, I hope God will. Sometimes we say that too, don't we? And what it means is, I forgive him, I hope God won't. We somehow or other make a noble gesture ourselves, but with a sort of satisfaction that the person will in any event be punished later. That's not meant to be our disposition either. We have got to be truly filled with love for our enemies as our blessed Lord was. And again, we must be prepared to forgive anything. Sometimes in our nobler, nobler moments we can say, don't we say, well, of course, I can forgive what was done against me. I could forgive him if he offended me, but I'll never forgive him for what he did to my mother or my sister or my child. That's a different thing. I could never, never forgive that. That's not what our Lord did either. Remember that our Lord, when he looked down from that cross and prayed for his enemies, he saw before himself his own mother, the Blessed Virgin Mary. We'll speak about her another day. But he, uh, and he saw her there in the most atrocious and terrible agony of grief. But he forgave them that also. Well, we've only got one word done tonight. I suppose I'd better stop. I'm sorry about this. It's gone on rather a little bit, isn't it? These words are tremendous words. But let's just, get, just conclude. We'll speak about the other words t tomorrow since we've had a bit of an introduction. But one last word about this word. It's all very beautiful and it's all very marvelous, isn't it, to consider these things. And it's all marvelous how we should conform our life to the life of Christ. But we may well ask, finally, what's in it for us? Because, as I say, these words are, I mean, they're superhuman. Only God can give us the grace and the power to do it. But is there some human motive, in addition to God's power, which will make it maybe possible for us to open our hearts to let God's grace work in it? What's in it for us? I think that forgiveness is absolutely necessary and essential to anybody's peace of soul. It stands to reason if we cannot forgive or we will not forgive, that we are keeping in ourselves rancor, unhappiness, a poisoned soul. And as long as that remains in us, we can never be at peace. And we can never be in a state of soul where God will be able to work in us. That's why our Lord preaches this doctrine too. Because as if, we cannot, if we do not have this peace and do not have this resignation, we can make no progress in union with him whatsoever. And when our Lord said these words, what happened? Did the people who listened to him, did they feel sorry for him? 
Did they say, oh, he was a nice man after all? Wasn't that good of him to forgive us? No, they didn't. He got a torrent of abuse when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They mocked him and reviled him and jeered at him even more. Now, that's something else that we can we, that we sometimes say. We say, what's the point in forgiving people? They're not sorry. He's not sorry. He's never apologized. Couldn't care less whether I forgive him or not. It's all exactly so. Very often, the people that we are called upon to forgive continue to dislike us, continue to hate us, or are totally indifferent to us and couldn't care less whether they're forgiven or not. <laughs> but so what? We've got to see that it's the poison in us which has got to be eradicated. You've got to see with a supernatural view that the prime beneficiary of forgiveness is not the person who is forgiven, but the person who forgives. This is the great and the wonderful lesson which our Lord wishes to teach us this evening. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let's say together the litany of the sacred passion of our Lord. Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, hear us. God, the Father of heaven. God, the Son, Redeemer of the world. God, the Holy Ghost. Holy Trinity, one God. Jesus, eternal wisdom. Jesus, sold for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus, prostrate on the ground in prayer. Jesus, strengthened by an angel. Jesus, in thine agony, bathed in a bloody sweat. Jesus, betrayed by Judas with a kiss. Jesus, bound by the soldiers. Jesus, forsaken by the disciples. Jesus, brought before Annas and Caiaphas. Jesus, struck in the face by a servant. Jesus, accused by false witnesses. Jesus, declared guilty of death. Jesus, spat upon. Jesus blindfolded, Jesus smitten on the cheek, Jesus thrice denied by Peter, Jesus delivered to Pilate, Jesus despised and mocked by Herod, Jesus clothed in white garments, Jesus rejected for Barabbas, Jesus torn with scourges, Jesus bruised for our sins, Jesus esteemed a leper, Jesus covered with a purple robe, Jesus crowned with thorns. Jesus struck with a reed upon the head. Jesus demanded for crucifixion by the Jews. Jesus condemned to an ignominious death. Jesus given up to the will of thine enemies. Jesus loaded with the heavy weight of the cross. Jesus led like a sheep to the slaughter. Jesus stripped of thy garments. Jesus fastened with nails to the cross. Jesus reviled by the malefactors. Jesus promising paradise to the penitent thief. 
Jesus commending St. John to thy mother as her son. Jesus declaring thyself forsaken by thy father. Jesus in thy thirst giving gall and vinegar to drink. Jesus testifying that all things written concerning thee were accomplished. Jesus commending thy spirit into the hands of thy father. Jesus obedient even to the death of the cross. Jesus pierced with a lance. Jesus made a propitiation for us. Jesus taken down from the cross. Jesus laid in the sepulchre. Jesus rising gloriously from the dead. Jesus ascending into heaven. Jesus our advocate with the Father. Jesus sending down on thy disciples the Holy Ghost. Jesus exalting thy mother above the the choirs of angels. Jesus who shall come to judge the living. Lamb of God, who takest away the sins of the world. Lamb of God, who takest away the sins of the world. Lamb of God, who takest away the sins of the world. Christ, hear us. We adore thee, O Christ, and we praise thee. Let us pray, Almighty and Eternal God, who has appointed thine only begotten Son, the Saviour of the world, and has willed to be appeased with his blood. Grant that we may so venerate this price of our salvation that by its might we may be defended upon earth from the evils of this present life, and in heaven we may rejoice in its everlasting fruit. Lord Jesus Christ, who to redeem the world is vouchsafed to be born amongst men, to be circumcised, to be rejected and persecuted by the Jews, to be betrayed by the traitor Judas with a kiss, and as a lamb gentle and innocent, to be bound with cords and dragged in scorn before the tribunals of Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, and Herod who dost suffer thyself to be accused by false witnesses, to be torn by the scourge and overwhelmed with opprobrium, to be spat upon, to be crowned with thorns, buffeted, struck with a reed, blindfolded, stripped of thy garments, to be nailed to the cross and raised on it between two thieves, to be given gall and vinegar to drink, and to be pierced with a lance. Do thou, O Lord, by these thy most sacred pains, which I, all unworthy, call to mind, and by thy holy cross and death, save me from the pains of hell, and vouchsafe to bring me whether thou didst bring the good thief who was crucified with thee, who with the Father and the Holy Ghost livest and reignest, God forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.